right. Where is uh, where is Jesus? That's what we've been asking the past uh, couple weeks. Uh, you ever ask that question? When, was the, when is the last time you asked that question? Where is Jesus? As you thought about your life, sometimes, especially as we get closer to Christmas, it's easy for us to have this this craziness going on in our lives and the busyness and the chaos that makes our life kind of look like that, where in the midst of all these things, we're trying to find Jesus. Did you know that somewhere in here, Jesus is hiding amidst the cards and the presents, the to-do lists and the candy and the gift cards and the Christmas lights? Jesus is hiding somewhere there. Can anyone see him? Right. Good. Um, I'll show you where he is. I thought this was a bunny, upside down head right here, that guy up there, see, in that yellow egg. It looks like an egg, a backwards egg with a yolk on the outside and the white on the inside. But that's Jesus <clears throat> sleeping in a manger with a little thing over his head. Oh, how cute, right? Beautiful. You ever, um, you ever wonder where Jesus is in the midst of all of the craziness of life. Last, uh, maybe it was about, I forget when it was, it was a few weeks ago, uh, one of um, our friends had a birthday party for their two-year-old daughter, uh, Caitlin. And so a bunch of little kids were there, and it was at a place called Monkey Joe's. Anyone ever been to Monkey Joe's before? Okay, this place is awesome. Okay, so um, I, was taking, I was taking my three-year-old Manny there. I said, under the one condition that you take a nap in a car. And so she really, she didn't want, it was on a Sunday afternoon, and she's wired and, and having a lot of fun. So if you take a nap in the car, then we'll go to, to Caitlin's birthday party. So she said, okay, she fell asleep in the car, and as we're driving, she's knocked out. And as most uh, infants or toddlers are, right when they wake up, they're extremely cranky. And so Manny was extremely cranky. Uh, she didn't want to walk, so I carried her in my arms as we're walking to Monkey Joe's. Okay, so we get to Monkey Joe's, and as soon as we get in, her eyes just light up as you see these inflatable bounce houses. I mean, this is Monkey Joe's is, is a place of, of fun and excitement for children and adults of all ages. Bounce houses and there's like TVs for, um, there's like a father's resting area with these leather chairs and the football game was playing and pizza and all this stuff. And we walk in there and all of a sudden all of the grumpiness and crankiness is just completely dissolved. Okay? So we're there at Monkey Joe's. We're there for the two-year-old birthday party of Caitlin. If you know anything about two-year-olds, two-year-olds don't really do well in bounce houses that are populated by big kids. And and so Caitlin was a little bit, she was just kind of like in awe of everything, but she didn't go in any of the bounce houses, I don't think. She was just kind of like hanging out over by the picnic tables. And so all of her friends, or presumably friends of parents who had kids, um, not many of them were two years old. A lot of them were much older, were running around, jumping in the bounce houses, and Time was going on. Monkey Joe was there. Pizza was there. There was these like things that the, the party favors that you blow and whoop, they come out and balloons and gift bags and all this stuff. And, and my daughter, Manny, was just having such a great time. And, and we're playing and um, the bounce houses, really exciting. And after a while, <laughs> we kind of forgot why we were there. And as I was jumping around in the bounce houses and laughing and get, actually, that was, Manny was jumping around in the bounce house, giggling and, and laughing. All of a sudden, we said, hey, where's Caitlin? And so we asked some people, where did Caitlin go? We're like, oh, we're not really sure. And so we were walking around looking for her, and they just found her sitting off like with her parents just kind of playing around because she can't go in these bounce houses. It's too little. It's too big for her. She's too little. And it dawned on me that in the midst of all of this hoopla and celebration and craziness, it's so easy for us to forget about the child whose birthday we're celebrating. 
And it's so easy to do that with Christmas too, isn't it? it to, to kind of go and sing our happy birthday song to, to Jesus and then in the midst of all of this stuff up there, uh, to kind of forget that we're here uh, for Jesus, that like we say, we are here for you. And it's easy for us to forget that. I wonder if um, that describes your heart two days out from Christmas. I know this is a question, where is Jesus, that the world has been asking, the collective soul of our nation and of our world is asking this, and, and probably more now during this Christmas than in many Christmases past. <clears throat> when you think about um, the great thing that was a nothing, the Mayan apocalypse, right? that, oh my gosh, the end of the world, and then nothing really happened. Um, but for many people, right, signs of the apocalypse are a lot more real than it was on December 21st. When you think about children being killed, and in the midst of that, many people are asking, where is Jesus? When the lives of 20 children, right, unprotected, innocent, and if we're talking about wartime, it's one thing, but they're talking about school. Where's Jesus in the midst of that? It's a question that's it's valid, it's legit, it's a completely real question. Where is Jesus? In our world, in your world, in our day, in our time, where is Jesus this Christmas? I want to answer that question. I want to talk about and begin to answer that question by looking at the accounts of Matthew and Luke in their Gospels about what that first Christmas looked like. We're going to look first at Luke chapter 2, read verses 1 through 7, and then 13 and 14. Then we're going to jump back to Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2. But I want to read this to explain the kind of world that Jesus Christ was born into that first Christmas to show where Jesus is in the midst of our world. Where in the world is Jesus? Let's look at Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. This is God's word. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Luke, the doctor, is giving some historical benchmarks here. And everyone went up, went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there's no room for them in the inn. Let me jump down in verse 13. To the shepherds, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. And if you jump back to Matthew, Matthew gives a different account. Jesus has been born. And then in verse 20, uh, verses 22 and 23, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And they call him, they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then jump against our last one. Chapter two, uh, verses 13 through 18. When they had gone, okay, this is the wise men who brought gifts. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod, the king, is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod, 
And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was filled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is God's word. I think uh, for those who have been anywhere around Christmas during your lifetime, whether you've read the accounts in the Gospels, you've seen the plays, you've seen the movies, um, you've looked at at, at cards and things like this, it's very difficult for us to give, uh, for me at least, to give an honest reading of the Scripture without bringing into my reading a preconceived notion and understanding of what that first Christmas was like. I've got in my mind all of these nativity scenes. I've got these postcards and picture perfect, all these things. But as we look into the passages that we just read, what we will see and what I hope to show is that the first Christmas that Jesus Christ was born into (coughs) was a far cry from the (laughs) near perfect images that we see in postcards and on uh, nativity scenes and on Um, posters wherever uh, we see this mention of Christmas. In fact, the world that Jesus Christ was born into was a world filled with all kinds of evil, all kinds of difficulty, all kinds of heartbreak. It was a world filled with problems. So two things that I want to point out here. The first thing from Luke's gospel, I want to say this, in a world filled with problems, Jesus came to be the Prince of Peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. In a world filled with problems, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. We see this in in, in Luke's gospel here. But as we think about Christmas, we all want something for Christmas. And I think we all do. Something, whether it's tangible, whether it's something intangible. I want the Washington Redskins to win the Super Bowl. My daughter, Manny, we we ask her to to make a Christmas list. What do you want um, from Santa Claus? And so she makes her list. When Olivia goes shopping, my wife goes shopping, she writes a a shopping list and writes all these things down. And and Manny wants to do everything that her mom does. So she says, I want to make my grocery list too. And so she takes a piece of paper and she just starts scribbling. And she says, this is eggs and this is carrots and all this. She never write carrots because it's vegetable. And she starts scribbling these things and she says, here's my list. And so we asked her to make a list for us, for Santa. What are the things that you want from, for Christmas? And she said, I want a rice cooker and I want a trash can. <laughs> so I want a Super Bowl ring. She wants a rice cooker and a trash can. Some things are a little bit easier than other things. I don't think she's going to get any of those things that she wants. But we all want something for Christmas. And growing up, one thing that I always wanted every Christmas was I wanted peace in the world. I don't know if I really wanted that. But I think I'd seen that on enough like Miss America pageants and, and Christmas stories that that's what I said I wanted. And I would always write that. would be number one on my Christmas list. The people living in Jesus' time wanted peace also. The thing is, they lived in a time that every you, you studied this in history class, right? The Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Throughout the Roman Empire, there is supposed to be this sense of peace where they said if you attack Rome, you attack some of our, our little kind of uh, sub sovereign states, then you will deal with the wrath of Rome. And so everybody was just kind of like living in fear, and that's what they called the Roman peace. And so in the midst of that, here's Joseph and here's Mary. And even though it seems like externally there's all this peace, internally, that's the one thing that they were longing for. So here's Joseph, he's hanging out, and his friend comes to him that, I don't know, Christmas or that year, said, Hey, Joseph, how you doing? 
Joseph's like, dude, I got problems. And his friend is like, I know. Right? What are the problems that he Here's the first problem. Look in verse 5. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married. Okay, so here's the first thing. They're pledged to be married. That means a wedding is coming up. You know how stressful weddings can be? Uh, yesterday I was at a wedding, um, and for about three, four months I've been emailing with this couple. Right? They're trying to plan their wedding. The, the, the problem was this, the bride is a graphic designer. And she's very incredibly art- artistic. We were at the reception last night, and it was at this, um, it was at a hotel, it was at a restaurant, and the centerpieces, she had designed them, a beautiful, amazing centerpieces. She had um, cr- made the curtains right, in the reception. She basically did everything, and they, uh, the, the groom had no idea. He was completely oblivious. He said, where do I stand? What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to say? He had no idea. Rehearsal, he was like, his first time, like he's ever been to a wedding before. It was crazy. And so she's dealing with all this stuff. But about four months out, we're emailing back and forth, and I'm like, hey, here's what, here are the requirements. You've got to be, you know, both of you have to be believers or, you know, all these things. And, and, and can you answer affirmatively to these things? And she writes back, and it's like this very nice email. Dear Pastor DL, thank you so much for taking the time out to email with us. Uh, both Rob and I have committed our lives to Jesus Christ. And, you know, so it was like really nice proofread and spell checked and all this stuff. As time went on, though, the email started getting shorter and less sweet. And I'd ask these questions. Here are some of the vows that I've used in the past. Can you pick one? And usually, you know, these nice emails. Thank you, Pastor, for writing back to us. She, she, doesn't, she didn't really know who I am, so I just signed my emails, DLK. She's like, dear Pastor DLK, thank you so much for taking the time to think about our wedding and to bless us on our day. Out of the many vows that you have, these are the ones that Robert and I find most appropriate. By the, by the time it got to, like, last week, I'm like, hey, um, it's, it's an outdoor wedding. It's supposed to be kind of cold outside. I hope you know that. Would you like me to wear a suit or a robe? She's like, please just wear a suit. <laughs> no greeting, none of that stuff. And as time went on, the night before, at the reception, at the rehearsal, um, she was a complete mess. I felt so bad. And she was so stressed out. The guy was like, ah, like, oh, this is great. I'm getting married. And Got to the wedding day yesterday, and I saw the groomsmen. I was praying together with them. I was like, hey, dude, how's, uh, how's, how's, your, how's your bride? And like, she was coughing. I tried to give her a cough drop, and she said, get out of here. You can't look at me right now. <laughs> and you know how stressful weddings can be, especially as you get closer and closer. Here's the first problem. He's under a lot of stress, and so is Mary. But that's not the biggest thing. He went there to, be, to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Okay, this is a problem. They're not married yet, but she's pregnant. I don't know how, gosh, I don't know how you can imagine that conversation to have gone. But what possibly could Mary have said in in order to convince Joseph, I'm pregnant, but but wait, Um, I didn't cheat on you, and I'm still a virgin. And what could you possibly say? In order to convince Joseph. And so the, uh, the only appropriate thing, Joseph like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to divorce her. I'll do it quietly to avoid the heartache, to avoid the, the stigma and the scandal on her. And what could you do? How can you? I mean, this has never happened before, obviously. Right? You're, you're pregnant, but you're still a virgin. What, what does that even look like? I don't know if you um, ever heard about this um, boy. He like, swallowed watermelon seeds all the time. Anyone used to do that? No, we used to. Yunyak? Okay, good. Andrew? Okay. Protein. Protein used to eat seeds. Now he eats protein. That's much healthier. There's this boy. He, was, he would eat watermelon seeds, and his dad would get mad at him. He's like, you know what? You need to stop doing that. You know what's going to happen? If you keep eating watermelon seeds, you're going to grow a watermelon inside of your stomach. 
They said, you know, in our neighborhood across the street, there's that lady who's pregnant. It's because she ate way too many watermelon seeds. And so he said, oh, my gosh, I don't want that to happen to me. And so later that week, he was hanging out. He's playing in his yard, and he saw the pregnant lady, and he walks up to her. He says, I know how that got in there. Wow. Can you imagine how embarrassing that must be? But it couldn't possibly be as embarrassing as the situation that Joseph and Mary found found themselves in. Imagine Joseph. All his friends are probably busting on him. Right? Joseph, they, uh, she, she couldn't wait for you. Right? You weren't good enough. All the things that could possibly have been spoken, and him being a righteous man in his community, all that scarlet letter that would be on both him and her. And you know what it is with her. With, with her. Today, a pregnant woman out of wedlock would be, a, depending on the context you're in, it's a little bit scandalous, but for them, it is criminal. If a woman was to commit adultery, it was grounds not, for, not only for divorce legally, but for death. You know how the Pharisees treated the adulterous woman, right? They wanted to have her stoned because that's what the Old Testament law said. If a woman is caught in adultery, then the penalty for that is death. Right? This is the legal implications of the situation that they find themselves in. But it's not just legally. Think about socially. What do they do to pregnant women right, who aren't married? or to women who supposedly cheat on their husbands. They bring them out in full view of everyone else, threaten to stone them. The men use them. They abuse them. The women will shun them. They gossip about them. They're the women who go to draw water at the well during the heat of the day away from anybody else because they know, they hear the snickers, they hear the jeers, they hear people talking about them. This is the social isolation and the stigma that comes in a situation like this. They're expecting a child, but not only that, because of the census that Caesar Augustus ordered, it says in verse 1, everyone is going to their own towns to register. And so here, Joseph and Mary are living in the town of Nazareth in Galilee, going to Bethlehem in Judea. Hey, everyone who knows geography or took Harvest to All, you know that Galilee is located where? That's right, in the north. Judea is located where? Very good, in the south. And in between these two is this region called Samaria. Very good. Okay? So he's going from Galilee to Judea, straight shot about 60, 70 miles. But no one ever goes through Samaria if you're a Jewish person. You always go around Samaria because the Samaritan people are dirty. Good, right? So you go around Samaria. That's why it's it. Well, I don't want to go into that. But it's it. Okay, so what, should have, what could have potentially been a 60, 75, uh, 70 mile journey, straight shot uh, north to south, it becomes going around Samaria about 100 to 120 miles on a donkey, pregnant. That's not a very fun road trip there. And as soon as they get into, they, as soon as they get into Bethlehem, Mary's about to pop. Right? She's just ready to this baby to come out. And they're looking and looking and looking. Where are we going to have this baby? And no ho- there's no such thing as hospitals back then. Hospitals were actually, the idea for hospitals came out. When Jesus said in Matthew, he said, I was sick and you took care of me. And so the followers of Jesus in a later time said, you know what? Let's gather all the sick people together and make it easy and let's care for them. 
because in so doing, we're caring for Jesus. But that was, they didn't have hospitals back then. Every hotel in town, every inn in town was full. There was nothing, nowhere to go, no houses. Nobody wanted to open up their homes to a pregnant couple traveling from Galilee. And so no place for this baby to be born. I know when we have babies born, we think about what's the best hospital. Oh, Winter Park Hospital is like a hotel. Oh, Winnie Palmer, this is like designed just for women and, and, and babies. This is a great hospital. We think about all these places. One of my buddies was talking about this last week. said when he went to visit a newborn child, he walked in. As soon as he walked into the hospital, there was hand sanitizer. So he put some on him. They go through the first door. They don't, you don't push the doors open because you'll get your hands dirty. They automatically open for you. Someone else pushes the door. As soon as you walk in, there's another hand sanitizer. So you sanitize your hands. You walk in, and right outside the door of the room that you're going to, there's hand sanitizer. You open the door, there's soap and water, and next to it is another hand sanitizer. You can put hand sanitizer on your hand sanitized hands already. Right? How many times do you need to sanitize yourself? But that's what we do in order to handle and see and care for newborn babies. But for Joseph and Mary, she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger where animals eat out of because there was no room for them in the inn. Imagine this already impregnated, nauseous, and then giving birth around the stench of animals and their manure. That's not a pretty scene. And then on top of that, we see in Matthew that they need to take a 250-mile journey from where they are in the middle of the night to Egypt. Where am I going to find a job in Egypt? They weren't very rich. It says later in Luke 2.25 when they talk about presenting Jesus at the temple, they gave the poorest offering that was acceptable according to Jewish law. They didn't have a lot of money. Imagine the situation that they're living in. Imagine this kind of time they're living in. The questions that Joseph is asking, how am I going to care for this child? How am I going to pay for this? Mary, I wanted to at least wait a little bit, earn some money, my carpentry business, so that we could afford this child. How are we going to do this? In every sphere of life, this Christmas story is full of problems. There was financial difficulty, familial difficulty, stress, moving, occupational difficulty. In every sense of the word, the first Christmas, Jesus was birthed into a world filled with problems. Let me ask, do you have problems today? As you think about your life, you got problems. Your marriage have problems. And your family have problems. Not getting along with someone there. Your friends making fun of you, talking trash about you because of something that they assumed about you that's not true. They heard something from somebody. Financially, you got hardship. My goodness, Christmas is a great time. I got to buy presents. But January 1st, I got to pay rent. I got to pay mortgage. This is not a good time. My friends are expecting gifts from me. I don't have the money to pay for it. Everyone else is getting them $50 gift cards and stuff like that. I only have like, I don't even have that much money. My credit card is going to, my check's going to bounce. My credit card's going to go over the limit. High interest. I don't, I, I don't think I can do it. In a world filled with problems, Jesus Christ was born. And it says in verse 15, peace the men on whom his favor rests. In the midst of all of these problems, and if you will look carefully, you will see Jesus. 
in the midst of the busyness, in the midst of the stress, in the midst of all the arguing and complaining, that you will see nestled along the messiness of the manger, the Prince of Peace. You see, it was this God who orchestrated events so that world leader Caesar Augustus issued a decree so that Mary and Joseph would go to the place where it was prophesied from 700 years past that Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, would be born. It was the same God who hung a star in the sky, bright enough for wise men from the Orient, from the East to come and see. And they came and they they not only worshipped the child, but they brought gifts of myrrh and frankincense and probably most importantly to them, gold that would fund their journey and would give them a nest egg from which they could start their family in Egypt. It was this God who spoke to Joseph in a dream and comforted him and let him know that it will be okay, that all of this is the will and the doing of my sovereign hand. And in the midst of that first Christmas filled with problems, the Prince of Peace finds himself central in that story. And he wants to do that for you too. Now you got problems? Where is Jesus in a world filled with problems? That's where he is, in the midst of those problems. The second thing that we see, if we jump back to Matthew, second thing that we see is that in a world filled with violence, Jesus is the Emmanuel tells us in verse 25 of chapter 1, 23 of chapter 1, it says, they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Again, you might have heard many times throughout this past week, people questioning along the lines of, if there's this much violence in our elementary schools, then where possibly could God be? Where is Jesus in the midst of all of these things, in the midst of this chaos and confusion and the violence? Where is God in the midst of that? And Matthew tells us that into a world of... The world that we're living in is a whole lot more similar to the world that Jesus was born into than we could ever dare to imagine, we could ever dare to make up. Because in the midst of that, he is God with God us in the midst of this world. So Jesus is born during a time where Herod is ruling over that area. Herod is a king, and he hears word that the king of the Jews has been born. And fearing an insurrection, he says, we need to do something about this child. The savior of his people is being born. I need to get rid of him. And so what does he do? To all children two years and under living in that vicinity, he brings the axe and he kills all of these kids. Does this sound like a famous movie from the 80s? You remember Terminator? One of these great classic movies. After the Mayan apocalypse in 2029, cyborgs take over the world, they destroy the human race, but there's this remnant of humans. They're led by one John Connor who is supposed to lead an insurrection against the cyborgs and they're supposed to try and defeat them. And so here's what they do. They send the cyborg, the Terminator, back in time 
1984. To 1984, where a pre-pregnant Sarah Connor is living. And so his mission is to kill Sarah Connor before John Connor can be born so that the cyborg nation could win and defeat the human race. And so here goes Terminator. He's got his, he looks in the phone book, Sarah Connor, knocks on the door. This old lady answers, says, Sarah Connor. She says, yes, <laughs> dead. Oh, my gosh. And this is why we're so, like, desensitized to violence, maybe. Yeah, Sarah Connor, dead, fine. Another Sarah Connor, same thing happens. It's eerily similar to the picture that we find in Matthew chapter 2. The Terminator named Herod the savior of his people named Jesus. And it's not just one, but all potential saviors. And he's knocking out and killing all of these children. This is a world filled with violence that Jesus Christ is born into. Where is he in the midst of our world today? As difficult as it might be for us to understand, he's with us in this world. It's, it's interesting because you hear people like our, our president, he, he just gave a great speech last week, and I was really, I mean, he quoted it, was just ext- he began it with extensive quoting of Scripture. And he's right. You know, wherever you are, wherever you are, that's the only place we can find hope and the only place we can find comfort is in the words of life given in Jesus Christ. And as he began that, one of the things that he went on to say, he went on to say, you know what? We do our best to raise our children at home. When they go off to school, we can't be with them. He said, what do we do? Because that's where we need each other to look after our children together. Certain point, there's a pastor in Seattle, Eugene Cho, and he says, I'm sick and tired of grieving. Like, how many times does this have to happen? I'm so tired of crying and mourning for lost children, for the generation coming behind us as being destroyed. I'm sick and tired of all this stuff. And that's what the president was saying, too. He's like, we've got to do something. And his solution, one of them, in addition to whatever gun control, I'm not giving any political statements here, but his thing is we've got to look out for each other. Which is good and understandable. But the problem is we're the ones who are doing this to ourselves. The same thing that we heard, 1980s, Michael Jackson and his band of brothers, we are the world. And we are the people. We are the children. We are the ones who make a better day for all these children. But we're also the ones who are destroying our future as well. It's what Rodney King said. Rodney King, for those of you who are too young to remember, he was the guy, just the figurehead of the race riots in L.A. throughout the world. African-American construction worker beaten by Caucasian cops, caught on video. Most of these cops were acquitted, just sparking riots and bloodshed and violence everywhere. And his defining statement, can we all get along? We've been saying this for ever since the dawn of time. And sadly, the answer is no, we can't. Obviously, we can't. Some of us can. Many of us can. The great majority of people can. But it only takes a handful who say, you know what? I don't want to get along with them. That's it. So what do we do? 
Because here's our reality is that violence begets violence. And this cycle continues on and on. C.S. Lewis, his great work, I forget what it was called. It's called something like Lessons on War or something like that. He says it does, it, in times of war and tragedy and disaster, death doesn't increase. It's just concentrated. And we see the world for what it really is. And it's concentrated, it's louder, it's bigger, so that we're brought face to face with it. Any false notions that we have of creating some kind of a utopia or some kind of heaven on earth by fighting to do this and working well together just isn't going to last. It's not going to work. And so into a world where people are killing each other, into a world of violence, Jesus was born. He escaped the violence that day, but he didn't escape it 33 years later. He could have. But when you love someone and you love something, you can't sit idly by. This is the outrage that everyone is feeling right now as it relates to Newtown, is something has to be done. And those whose hearts are genuinely moved can't just, can't just say, oh, that's too bad and get on with life. They say something has to be done about this because love cannot sit idly by and watch violence continue to perpetuate its cycle. And anytime violence is met by violence, it continues. The only way violence is stopped is if one party finally just absorbs it and says, that's it, it stops here. And at the cross, the one whose hand ordered the decree through the lips of Caesar Augustus, that everyone would go back to their own town. The one who put the star in the sky that led wise men and shepherds to the birthplace of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The one who spoke this world into being. The one who healed lepers. The one who acquitted the guilty. The one who raised the dead. The one who could have called legions of angels to rescue him and wipe out all these soldiers at the foot of the cross, didn't. He became the ultimate victim of violent injustice because love could not sit idly by. It moved into not only the neighborhood, but moved into the thick of violence and said, I will absorb the violence. I will absorb the punishment. I will take the gunshot. I will take the wounds so that one day this will forever be eradicated. Where is Jesus in the midst of this world? That's where he is. He's right in the middle of it, weeping and mourning and grieving and crying with all who've lost life. But he's not just there in his presence. He's there in his power. Because one day all that is broken and wrong is going to be made right. Where is Jesus this Christmas? Wherever you are, that's where he is, in a world filled with problems. He's your Prince of Peace if you let him be. In a world filled with problems, he's our Emmanuel, God with us, right there. And he's there. You'd open your heart and believe this. Let's pray. Hey, where are your issues? Where are your problems? Where are your questions? The questions of where is Jesus? What motivates? What drives that today? Yes, some of our people, they will tell you that God can use presidential edicts and decrees in order to accomplish his dreams for the people that he loves. 
God is able to provide and to put in the heart of a generous person your name and your need and deposit that into your life. Where is God? He's there, wherever you are. He wants to show himself to you. Let's take a moment to pray to the Lord right now and just respond to his word. How do you need God? Where do you need God? The message of Christmas that he didn't come into a sterilized, beautiful, perfect world. He came into a world that was dirty and messy and ugly and broken to be everything. Maybe not that we want him to be, but everything that we need him to be. And as we delight ourselves in him, he will give us the desires of our hearts. So let's pray together for a couple of moments. I'll pray and then we'll continue to worship through our givings and our songs. Let's pray together. Jesus. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you did not just write your love to us in the sky with some helicopter, some airplane. You didn't just shed a tear in the form of raindrops in the midst of the hardest moments of our lives. But you took the biggest step that could ever be made, God becoming man, God Almighty, King of the universe, becoming a helpless baby to enter not only into our world and then to live in an ivory tower until the time came, but you lived and breathed and suffered and was tortured on a killing tree so that we can know that you are not immune from violence and that we can know that you are near to those who feel oppressed and hurt, to know that you are near to those who feel afflicted by hardship and problems and issues that you are the God of all peace, the Father of comfort, for all who mourn, for all who grieve in Newtown, as well as for all who need you here today. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come so that when the new year comes around, that as a result of Christmas, we would testify and have stories to share of your unending faithfulness, of your sovereignty in the midst of the storm, and of your great provision in our time of greatest need. It's still true. We need you. Oh, how we need you, Lord God. Would you continue to show yourself to us? May we respond in glad and honest worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.